All right, Bizzlecast listeners, I am back with my good buddy Yark, who is here on episode 13, I believe, talking about Spain and Muslims in Spain. It's an awesome discussion, talked about all sorts of stuff. Um, people love that podcast, uh, so there was there was demand for your return, Yark. So what do you have to say to the Bizzlecast listeners? Thank you for listening, and thank you for uh, asking me to come back. And, uh, you know, definitely I'm here for you guys. So anyone that um, is interested in contacting me or can I plug my Twitter? Plug it. Uh, <laughs> I'm at, at Yarek. It's at Y-A-R-E-H-K uh, on Twitter. And um, I would love to get feedback and kind of bounce ideas off of people and get some debate going and starting and sparking some interesting conversations. Absolutely. And you people should take him up on that because he's definitely a people person and loves talking with people and hearing from people. So uh, we're going to dive right in. You ready? Sounds good. So today, we are going to take on one of the biggest and most difficult and controversial issues of our time, which is race and racism. And while this can be a very touchy subject, we are dealing with the historical, etymological, and performative roots of words and concepts like race and racism. Is it real or imagined? Is academia helping or hurting our desire to move beyond race by creating so many structures and, you know, words, jargon, to help describe what's going on, but maybe just confusing the issue? So... Starting in Spain, where proto-racism developed through the persecution of the Moriscos and Conversos, the converted Muslims and Jews, by the church, was carried into New World imperialism, informing racialist notions as applied to indigenous Americans as well as the African slaves who were forcibly brought there. And although it's a touchy subject, we deal with it as objectively as possible. And our debate includes questions about the etymological basis of race, and whether we can apply modern notions of identity formation to historical cultures and societies. So bringing it back to Yarek, so you mentioned this topic at at the end of uh, the first Bizzlecast that we did together, um, and, uh, you know, I think identity formation is one of those great topics that spans so many different you know, subjects and, and, uh, academic fields, uh, that you can study, you know, purely academically or more practically and, you know, it combines religion, anthropology, sociology, psychology, for sure. would love to talk about the psychological elements of what's going on here, both on the individual and the group level. Um, and so to, to, to bridge here, and again, you know, at any time you want to talk about your work, past subjects, you know, we want to make connections with history, uh, you know, please feel free to do so. But to get this rolling, let me ask you this question. So, you know, w- when you really devote yourself to an academic topic, you have to have some personal connection to it. Now, right, so if someone like yourself who's of, um, you know, Hispanic descent or whatever, uh, but also, uh, you know, who converted to Islam, I imagine that's part of what attracted you to this particular topic, but I imagine also that you must be making some connections between the uh, the Morisco period and what's going on today, whether you're writing about it or, or just thinking about it, right? Yes. Meaning, meaning, well, let me, let me just, meaning, you know, contextualizing it either in writing or just in your own brain with, you know, what you observe and experience in today's world. 
So uh, some of the work that I've done on the Moriscos has focused on uh, iterations or like sort of early iterations of Islamophobia. Um, I also think that uh, some of what I find looks a lot like racism. Mm -hmm. It's it's like, it's really interesting for me. I am very concerned uh, with sort of with the early intellectual history of race uh, and where Muslims in Spain fit into that conversation. Um, And so there are, there have been discussions. Um, there are people that write about the sort of the, the, the Jewish folk in Spain and how they fit into that larger conversation about, about race and racism. Uh, the term race is often used to describe and sort of like, or, or sort of like a, a state sponsored racism is used to describe what occurred with the Moriscos. Uh, and what part of what I see myself doing is including them in that larger conversation. Um, more directly and sort of challenging the notion that uh, it was just a form of cultural racism and not necessarily racism the way it's been explained in the 18th and and 19th century. So this isn't necessarily uh, a byproduct of scientific racism or the thoughts that, you know, post-enlightenment discussions about uh, where people fit on a racial ladder, of course, with, uh, with white folks, white European folks, Mm -hmm. Western white European males at the very kind of pinnacle of that. Right. Um, And so this is, this is for me, part of what I want to do in my work is address where Moriscos fit into this larger conversation, include uh, what happened in Iberia uh, during the golden century, right? The El Siglo de Oro, which is like this this golden age um, of, Habsburg Spain during the 16th century and arguing that what was happening in Iberia in terms of how the Spanish state was addressing the Morisco question um, also informed how the Spanish state answered the Indian question, right? Or the Native American question uh, in the Caribbean, in, in New Spain, what would become Mexico, and of course in Peru. Right. Well. right? So yep. all this stuff happening um, mm-hmm. that is occurring and sort of like the, whether it's the society of different castes, La Sociedad de Castas, uh, that was kind of this, this racial hierarchy that was implemented in the new world, how that then is being informed by this sort of uh, theonatural right. social hierarchy that places both Jews and Muslims at the very bottom in Iberia. Right. And so, you know, one of the great revelations for me that came out of our first podcast together on the topic of race, you know, which when you said it, I was like, okay, I should have connected these dots before. But since, you know, my study was was well before 1492 in terms of my focus of Al-Andalus, and and then I sort of had learned and studied European history kind of separately, you know, because that's how they teach it in schools. But you were trying to explain the difference between the, you know, the first big exile of Jews and Muslims in 1492, which is the famous one, and then the subsequent, um, you know, exile or persecution or torture or killing of the Moriscos, even after they had converted or apparently converted. And you, you know, the narrative you created about it 
introduced the topic of race in terms of how you presented it, but also that that was a key moment, right? Because you can really look at the 1492 expulsion as purely religious, but you can't explain the subsequent ones just as religious. And this is where the ideas of race come in, right? I mean, am I sort of on the right track here? So the 1492 expulsion of the Jewish population was just of, uh, for by and large, it was the expulsion of uh, Jewish folk who had not converted. And so Jewish folk who had converted, um, for the most part, were allowed to stay. Although they did, of course, suffer uh, inquisitorial persecution, uh, both here, uh, both here in, in the New World, in the mm-hmm. Western Hemisphere, and also uh, back in Iberia. Now, what's different, though, and this is kind of what I was hinting towards and I guess pointing towards last time, is that um, while in 1492 there was a sort of mass exodus of uh, Muslims from Granada who decided to leave, uh, many, many stayed. This was, I mean, it was a, lot, a, a section of the population left, mainly the elites or those folks who could, who could leave, um, but many stayed. And so these were like in the tens of thousands of people that lived in the city of Granada proper in the Albaicin and also then those folks who lived in the neighboring towns that formed the larger, you know, part of the kingdom of Granada, not just the city. Right. And there were also Muslim populations throughout Iberia, uh, both in Castile, old and new, and also then in Aragon um, and in Valencia. And these older populations had been there since the initial pushes uh, during the 11th and 12th and 13th century uh, of Northern Christians uh, in their their conquest of Muslim territory and pushing southward. Right. These Muslims were considered uh, mudejars, um, and they essentially were people, which is a, which is like a pejorative term that uh, has often been linked to. Uh, these Muslims being domesticated in quotation marks. These are, these are the domesticated Muslims. These are the Muslims who did not leave. And of course, this is a, a complicated history. <laughs> is it like what? Like the Uncle Tom Muslims? Is that what's being I- insinuated here? It's, it's implied, uh, especially amongst those folks. Not trying to be offensive here. I'm just trying to make historical connections. Yeah, I mean, uh, of, yeah, I mean, of course, there, you know, it's uh, Uncle Tom is sort of like a, an anachronistic term to describe here, but definitely along that same vein, right? Like along, like that feeling. Right. Um, uh, some folks have used the term, um, uh, and I don't like the term at all, uh, but like house Muslim and all this other stuff. I, really, I, I was headed there, but decided not to go no, there. No, I mean, I, I really don't like those terms at all. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that they are anachronistic and they don't really speak to the realities. Yes. Yeah, okay. So, so for the purposes of this podcast and this conversation, I'm going to wrap up for now the concepts of race and ethnicity. I know it's not the same thing, but you know, there's a lot of smart people out there listening to this, and we haven't really spent a lot of time defining race and ethnicity separately. But going forward, it's not that I'm going to use them interchangeably, but I want to talk about people who look different, right? It has to, some combination of culture and physical difference. Uh, because there had to be a component of this in Spain, and this is what's so crazy about Spain's even today, 
you know, unwillingness to come to terms with identity. It's like, I'm sorry, like people in Spain did not look like that a thousand years ago before the Muslims came, right? And the same way, the way I look today, you know, my ancestors in in, in Judea 2,000 years ago did not look like a red-headed, you know, light-skinned Jewish kid. It's just the realities, right? Uh, there, there's intermingling, there's intermarriages, um, you know, more so than anyone wants to admit. But just to go on like a historical rundown, you know, when was the rupture where physical appearance became such a strong indicator of identity, especially in Europe, but really everywhere? So let me give you a couple of historical examples, right? So Judaism, of which I'm, I guess, most familiar with just because I'm Jewish and had a Jewish education, although it's not what I studied undergrad or graduate school, but... You know, Judaism is not normally seen as a proselytizing religion. But the main reason for that is because they've been a oppressed minority for 2,000 years. And it's really hard to proselytize en masse without, you know, military might to go behind it. But, you know, if you just go back to the texts of, of Judaism, like Old Testament Judaism or whatever, both historical and biblical, you know, they would routinely, you know, slaughter other ethnic groups or, or force them to convert. But once they converted, at least in the accounts that we have, you know, it's not clear that the fact that, you know, the Canaanites or whatever, the various ethnic groups, you know, it, it's presented as a, a you know, a, a dualistic dichotomy, right? It's either you're Jewish or you're, you're an Israelite or you're not. And you convert and then you're an Israelite, you know, and that's it. Now, in Islam, and part of this is just a lack of information, obviously, historically from Judaism. We don't know. It's possible, you know, the quote-unquote more pure Israelites were higher up in the hierarchy and that the, you know, the various ethnic groups that were living in, in Canaan, in, in Canaan, uh, before the Israelites came and conquered it and then left and reconquered it, whatever. Very unclear. Now, in Islam, in the early expansion of Islam, the amount of conversion and how rapid it was was ridiculous. And Dr. Blankenship used to talk about that it was a very practical, um, almost mathematical equation by the various leaders in the conquered countries. You know, it's not that it was, you know, purely unforced, but the bottom line was, it's like, okay, these people are conquering us. We might as well convert because then at least we can rise uh, into the elite or have the possibility of, you know, joining the bureaucracy or the religious hierarchy. You know, there are a lot of practical reasons to convert. The, the extent to which it was forced or not, perhaps you could talk about. Now, you know, it's true that Arab Muslims, uh, in some situations where they were ruling over non-Arab Muslims, so would you know have preferential treatment or whatever again not totally clear the point i'm trying to get to here is untangling people's religious identities from their ethnic identities the further you go back in history the more difficult it gets and the idea of race like the word itself and the idea that we have today is based on a european conception of race so to take the long way around to connect spain but try and open up the issue a little bit like where does race come from was it just an understood thing that was never you know given a real term until like the last 500 years in the in the sort of colonial and post-colonial period? Like, where, where does that come from? Was it already implicit in civilizations going back thousands of years in terms of your genetic, you know, stock or whatever? Like, where? I'm not even talking about Darwinism, but in Spain, I have to imagine that people with darker skin were given, you know, less leeway in terms of suspicion from the Inquisition than people with lighter skin, right? Um, or is that not the case at all in terms of the Spanish church post-1500? Okay, so... Here's the really interesting part about the Morisco question. I'm throwing a lot out there, buddy. I just wanted to get some topics rolling. Oh, no problem. So uh, race is 
uh, a very modern phenomenon. This is what I've always sort of argued in my class when I taught race and poverty in the Americas here at Temple. Um, race is a product of modernity. It is not a product of sort of antiquity. There were ideas about others. Of course, identity itself is sort of formulated against this idea of the other, the stranger, um, even this idea of uh, folks that come from other places. So geography played a really big part as to how people understood themselves and how they organized themselves. In Islam, in early Islam, and according to um, Dr. Blankenship's book, the end, of the, the end of the Jihad State, where he talks about the end of the Umayyad period or kind of the Umayyad dynasty and kind of mm. talks about the tail end of this. Right. Um, well, first off, ethnicity is a very modern and very even actually I would say I would argue a more contemporary term. Yeah. Um, you don't find ethnicity being used in literature the way it's used now until about like the 50s and the 60s. Um, you do find it kind of being used earlier, but at the very kind of like the prominence that it's given doesn't really happen until the 20th century. Right. So just just to jump in really quickly. So when I'm using these terms and concepts, you know, talking about ethnicity or Uncle Tom, whatever, these sorts of, you know, as you say, anachronistic, you know, it's just to try and create sort of conceptual structures to, to just do a comparison. It's like, yeah, ethnicity didn't exist as a term, but it doesn't mean that wasn't being acted upon consciously or subconsciously without being a term. I'm just talking about people's, you know, genetics. Well, that's what the thing is that like it's going back to your earlier conversation about discourse itself and the use of words. Sure. So when I when I'm, when I'm arguing for the historicity of particular terms, it's because things may not necessarily have been thought of that way. So this is what I'm getting at, though. Yeah. Which, so which is that? Let me just let me just lay out the argument here. All right. So I'm 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 <laughs> I'm pushing for a conflation of terms here on purpose, and that we're going to just say that this is a conceit that we're talking about. A that people who look different, or B come from a different genetic stock. Now, genetics is such a modern concept, but like you know, rulers. Uh, you know, kings and emperors coming from, you know, genetic lines, basically. I mean, this goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And there were understandings of, you know, what we would now call genetic lines or, or you know, or racial backgrounds or whatever. The, 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 the People were acting on these concepts long before they realized they were acting on them and long before, even longer before the terms which, you know, we, we should keep expanding on the terms. My point being, to bring it back, you know, at, at some point, people, let's put it this way, people have been acting on uh, notions of just people looking differently or sounding differently for a very long time. At some point, it became more conscious, as you talked about in the first podcast, that, the you know, the race discourse, you know, came out of like this European period in a way. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I, I guess what I'm saying is, uh, so you talk, you talk about the Moriscos in terms of performance, but you also mentioned that, that, that racial discourse did start to enter into the fray. I believe during that period, I listened to the podcast a billion times. 
Um, that, you know, I'm not saying that it started in Spain or, or that the full definition came out. And then obviously contact with Africa a little bit later, you know, and Africans in slavery. And as you pointed out, Native Americans, that's what I'm getting at here, right? I mean, at a certain point that the, the politics of identity, regardless of whether the terms were there or not, the politics of identity started evolving and changing and getting more complicated. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just trying to, trying to open up that discussion of, of like, you know, like, what are the criteria for identity? You know, when, 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 like, if a person was falsely accused, let's keep, here's an example, right? If a first was, if a person was falsely accused of being um, a Muslim, Morisco, whatever, in the 1500s by the Inquisition, like, what was that based on? Those neighbors telling on him, like, didn't take out the garbage, they look different, they smell different, you know? Because it, it does not so clear cut. And as you point out, you know, some of these notions of race carried over to the Spanish conquest and, you know, uh, misadventures in the new world. I'm just trying to tie this all together. Because while we can point to these terms coming out, historically in certain points, you know, look up in the Oxford English Dictionary or whatever, they were being performed. This will be a good time to perform it. They were being performed upon and they were being performed long before the notions became fully conceptualized and into terms that we are still struggling with today. I would agree that some of this stuff was happening before, right? So you do have um, iterations of this. And I, I mean, I would argue that um, the Muslim obsession with lineage, uh, which is part of what you're discussing, even when you know you have lineages of monarchs and things like this. Um, yeah, the, the Muslims in Al-Andalus were very much concerned with lineage. They were very much concerned with where people came from originally, uh, there was a like st- the Berbers, right? I mean, the Berbers weren't treated the yeah. same. I mean, there was a social hierarchy based on uh, proximity to the earliest companions and earliest converts to Islam amongst the Arabs themselves. Um, and so those folks that were closer to the original Muslim community in Mecca and Medina, they were higher up than those folks who, say, converted to Islam from Syria. And so the Syrians themselves were considered... Uh, of a different stock. And so you have all of that stuff traveling to Al-Andalus and with the conversion of the Berbers, which took a a notoriously long time, they were notoriously difficult to convert. Uh, But they did finally convert uh, en masse. They converted as a large sort of population from the top down. And part of their conversion was this... uh, convincing them to come and fight with the Muslims, right? The Muslims were trying to conquer North Africa. They had done pretty well. They had gotten to uh, what is modern-day Algeria and Tunisia, and they wanted to keep pushing forward. And in order to do that, they had to convince the Berbers to go along with them. And one of the things that they did, uh, at least what the Umayyads did, was they sent uh, Musa ibn Nusayr, who himself, uh, who was a son of a convert, right? So he wasn't like an Arab per se. And so they sent Musa and Musa was able to convince the Berbers, hey, look at me. I'm, I'm the governor of this territory. I'm not an Arab. I'm the son of a convert. And this is what you can, you know, part of what the discussion was, this is what you could become too. Um, and so when uh, Tariq ibn Ziyad crosses the Strait of Gibraltar, which bears his name, to Iberia, uh, he takes along Muslim, uh, Muslim Berber warriors and the Berbers form the bulk of his army. Right. And so in Al-Andalus, you have a social hierarchy that is 
based on lineage. So you have the Arabs at the very top during the Umayyad period, uh, those who were closer to the dynasty based on not only lineage, but also like folks that were tied through family ties and through uh, just ties of, of networks, social networks closer to the Umayyads were at the very top and the Arabs that followed both the Syrians and other Arabs were underneath them. The Berbers sort of formed this middle tier. um, And the Berbers of course had their own internal tribal hierarchies. And then at the very bottom of, at least within the Muslims were the converts. And so the converts to Islam, you're talking about the people of Espana, like the, like, like the local people converts as opposed to the Berber converts. Yes. Okay. So Iberian converts to, to Islam were at the very bottom of that social hierarchy within Muslims. And then you also then, of course, have Jews and Christians outside of that hierarchy completely that were also underneath them. Right. But you have the Berbers. Um, what did we establish last time? Late 900s, early 1000s, the first Berber uh, movements, you know, the, the quote unquote invasions that weren't invasions. Anyways, point being 1492, Bawab deal. Abu Abdullahi, right? He's not a Berber, right? The ruling class are still Arabs. I mean, you know, the, the Berbers came in, won some wars for them, helped them stay in power, did have, you know, influence and power, obviously. And yet, at the very end, who's at the top of the Granada hierarchy? I could be wrong. It seems that they're all Arabs still. So there, th- there's some racism going on there. Or, or am I reaching? No, I, 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 so I don't want to call... I don't want to say that stuff that happens, I don't want to say that racism, or at least I'm arguing that racism as we know it does not exist until the 16th century. Um, and that what existed prior to that, we Can we say discrimination? We can't I mean, label it racism. What about, okay, just, how about just discrimination based on your, your both, a combination of your background and your, your sort of look? Like, you know, like how, how would people know that you are from the Umayyads? Hold on, let me give you a very concrete example of- sure. What looks like, right? Uh, this 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 differentiation. So, um, Abdul Rahman the uh, third, arguably the the most prominent Umayyad ruler in Iberia, who actually claimed the caliphate, who reinstated the caliphate yep. um, during the 10th century. He was a redhead like you. Get out of fucking town! No, I'm not kidding you. He was a redhead like you, and a redheaded father, Arab was a Visigothic princess from Visigothic stock. Hmm. And he would dye his red hair black oh, yeah. so that he could look darker. Yep. Right? And so this is like an inversion of the typical racial hierarchy based on phenotypes that we know today, right? Where people want to be lighter. There's whitening creams all throughout, you know, <laughs> the sure. developing world. Although, 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 if he did end up going to li- live with the Visigoths instead, he wouldn't have dyed his hair. That's the whole point. Well, I mean, the, the Visigoths were not in power, right? So, you, you know what I mean? If he was going to go live in the Christian areas and try and pretend to be not a Muslim, <laughs> you know, half Arab or whatever, like he, he dyed his hair because that was the, you know, the, the, uh, th- th- those were the strictures, you know, spoken or unspoken or otherwise of his society. It's the same as bleaching your face. It's just that, you know, the notion of beauty um, or, or, you know, even just like looking like a quote unquote real person was different, which meant going darker. Yes. Yeah. It's all connected. That's all I'm saying. You know, it's like, be- you know, because the Europeans have completely over the last 500 years you know, redefined, you know, lighter and whiter as better through many, many means, both purposeful, you know, and not so purposeful, 
that wasn't always the case. Sometimes it's better to look darker. And that's what I'm talking about, performance of race that was not seen as such, and we can define it now. That's really what I'm getting to here. It, you know, it did matter what you look like, even if there wasn't racism as we know it today. Yeah, I, I think that there's plenty of uh, instantiations in the past that look like racism, sound like racism, um, that in many ways perform like racism. My argument is more along the lines of like modern iterations of racism have a particular genealogy. And my, what my work does is attempt to place Muslims into that conversation where they haven't been placed before, right. um, where discussions about Moorishness and even, even in Spanish itself, the words that we use to describe variations of color like the term moreno, which is actually the root of that is the word moro, moor, and ideas about color related to the moors, moors being darker, moors being African, um, all of these things that are partially true, right? Because I, what I, what I want to argue, though, is that the label moor in Spain or the ideas about moorishness that kind of informed early race or racial conversations or even proto-racism in, in Spain during the 16th century we're not just informed by phenotype. And the reason why I do that and the reason why I'm pushing back on this so hard is because when you limit it just to phenotype, you stop talking about all this other stuff that is part of the conversation where, where religion, both Judaism and Islam, are, are fundamental to understanding how these ideas developed. And so if you only talk about phenotype, then these cultural aspects, these religious aspects get lost in the sauce. Well, no, and that, that's my whole point. And I mean, that, yeah, we're, we're getting to the same thing. I'm just, I'm pushing in, 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 from a different direction, but towards the same, which is, yes, they used to all be mixed up, you know? And that's what's so crazy and so interesting about this is that they used to be all mixed up and undefined. I'm just trying to point out that, you know, things can happen before their name does such, you know? Like, Abdul Rahman, uh, you know, whatever his name is, he, he, he dyed his hair. You know, that was a conscious choice. He would have been treated differently, or he thought he would be treated differently. Yeah. He didn't change the color of his hair. You know, I'm treated differently because I'm Jewish, but I don't look Jewish. <laughs> and it's an interesting question, whether it helps me or hurts me, that I, I do or do not look Jewish or whatever, even though I am Jewish. Now, this isn't a modern phase, obviously. Yeah, I'm trying to both tangle and untangle the issue and try and figure out Again, going back from our first conversation, that l- let me let me put it more directly here was the sort of proto racial. I'm not gonna call it racism. Was the proto racialism or or proto notions of race that seemed to be developing in the 1500s in Spain? Was that happening elsewhere in Europe, or was Spain the first because they were the first major colonial power? I mean, what's you know how much of this can we attribute to Spain in terms of modern discourse of of these notions and these ideas? So I don't. Very good question. I mean, I don't want to just blame Spain, right? I just want to be oh, so bad. Look at the, like, look at blame the Canada? Yeah. Um, so I don't want to just blame the Spanish, right? Because I think that's right. so limiting. Um, actually, the first iteration, if we're looking at dictionaries and what dictionaries point to is the etymological root of the word race comes um, from raza, but they, they point to Italy during uh, the early parts of the 15th. The 16th century, around 1524, 1526. So, which had their own Inquisition there as well, which I teased in our first podcast. We didn't. So, like you have, which which you do have though, right? In Italy, that's part of this conversation that most folks don't normally or usually talk about. 
um, is the fact that there was also a Muslim presence in uh, southern Italy and specifically oh, yeah. in, uh, in Sicily itself, right? So the Muslim threat to both Italy as a, as a peninsular power, kind of like Italy, right? As we're talking about it right now, it's also sort of like it's not what was going on back then. It was more a city of uh, uh, principalities and different like it was all divided up by different folks. But that discussion happens, uh, you know, kind of like in conjunction with developing notions of, about Islam as being the real big threat to Europe, not only from the sort of uh, 500 year presence of Muslims in Sicily and the presence of Muslims along other islands in the Mediterranean, but also sort of with this idea that there's the Christian West or the Christian Europe. And developing ideas about Europeanness, um, developing ideas about what it meant to be European that were sort of coalescing around phenotype, right? Uh, that were sort of being gathered in opposition to even even the Spanish themselves were otherized within the discourse of both the British and the and their enemies in the in the, the Low Countries and the Netherlands. Um, these folks were were also talking about. The, the Spanish as being really different. And they talked about Spain as being this sort of uh, Moorish country. And the Spanish traders, when they would go to different posts in the 16th century uh, throughout the Mediterranean, one of the, one of the, the pejorative things that they were called was Muslim, mm. called Moors. You know? mm-hmm. And so regardless of whether – and these were Catholics from like old Catholic and Christian families. Uh, but it didn't matter because Spain had the taint of North Africa and the taint of Islam more specifically. Mm-hmm. And I think the taint of Islam was a bigger taint even than the taint of North Africa because, of course, North mm. Africa had once belonged to the Roman Empire and had been part sure. of the Mediterranean world. Right. Um, and so, like, yeah, the, 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 these discussions were happening and, and they weren't just localized in Iberia. Mm-hmm. And I like to point to that development or at least the first recorded usage of the word rasa or race in right. early first even mm-hmm. though it's taken up in Iberia I think more fully mm. um, because it does speak to how these conversations were were continental right they weren't right. just um, localized in the Iberian mm-hmm. Peninsula mm-hmm. and so it, it kind of not only sort of uh, disperses the blame for racism a little bit Right, uh, but it also uh, purposefully says that this is a, a, a discourse or a discursive tradition regarding race and phenotype and all of these other issues, like somatic difference, essentially uh, mm. localized in Europe as far as how we view the word today. But as far as as you're pointing right. towards difference, um, ideas regarding the other, ideas regarding strangers who look and sound different. That, of course, as you pointed out, has a, a longer tradition. Absolutely, absolutely. Speaks to identity. All right, word. I'm, I'm sorry uh, if like that 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 devolved into us talking about the same thing from different places and and. No, no, that's good. That's good. We want debate. Got to have debate. I mean, that's the thing. We're both right. You know, that's the whole. It's, it's so complicated. It is. It'll start making more sense once once we get. Uh, I'm starting. I'm going to about to bridge us a little bit more modern. Maybe. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, start making more. Start making more sense. So. <laughs> Um, all right, you, 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 you get to go. Yeah, I'm just like, I'm just like, oh man. Uh, I'm like, don't worry, I'm don't worry. Like, uh, you know, just 
push it back. Just, I'm coming off as being too fucking academic and shit. You know what I mean? Well, well that's the thing. When I talk to academics, I, I try and be more the, the regular person. And when I speak to regular people, I'm the more academic. So it's great. I love it. All right, cool. Uh, it's awesome. So, All right, so just to bridge us forward here, and uh, you know, we keep talking about performance. We'll get back to that. The idea of seeing things in their instance as opposed to just defining a term. As we move forward through history... Um, from the 1500s towards the present, perhaps some of these terms will start becoming, if not more clear, then it, it, you know, at least um, illuminated a, a bit more, perhaps. So, so in the 1500s, as well as everything going on within Spain, which you know you are writing your dissertation on, and we have talked about at length, Spain was also expanding, specifically to the Western Hemisphere. Latin America, South America, as was Portugal, to a somewhat lesser extent. And this is really interesting to me, right? Because you're talking about um, you know, race and ethnicity and religion in, in regard to Muslims, but you know, in today's American discourse, you hear the word race or racism, and even a dummy on the street, what's the first thing they're going to think of? They're going to think of black people. They're going to think of African Americans because just, that is just the discourse of America today, you know, and, you know, more aware people and educated people um, are aware that racism is going on everywhere at all times involving all types of people, um, you know, and that's how it's framed in this country. And what's so interesting to me is that we've got this, you know, proto-racism or whatever you want to call it going on within Spain. And again, we're not blaming Spain, you know, it's not Spain's fault. It's just the historical facts that some of these ideas were starting to be manifested there and in Italy and elsewhere. So they expand to Latin America. And what happens? The conquistadors, they start mixing with the local people, right? Yeah. And, and what's so crazy is... The British and the French, with their particular colonial approach, have the exact opposite approach. So when slaves start being brought over to South America, which which were controlled by Spain and Portugal, you know, mixing was allowed to happen. The slaves there were, to a certain extent, allowed to preserve uh, some of their cultural traditions, whereas that could get you killed if you were a slave in North America. You know, you couldn't speak the language, you couldn't even hint, at, you can't even sing or play instruments as slaves, and that, there was many reasons for that. Um, now, we know for sure that there was, you know, um, <laughs> plenty of slave owners, you know, doing bad things with their, their slaves, female or otherwise. We know that there was intermixing in this country. Obviously, you can see it on the streets. But what's so crazy is if you go to a place like Brazil, right? And that was Portuguese, not Spain, but similar approach. You go to a place like Brazil today, and you have a huge you know, rainbow of colors from very dark black that look like you know, someone from like West Africa to you know, whiter than, or <laughs> there's no one that's whiter than me, as white as me, uh, just in terms of skin texture. And you know, in, in Brazil, from north to south, it goes from darker to lighter and from poorer to richer. It's sort of the reverse of this country, right? So the richest people, the most powerful, are in the south of Brazil, and they look mostly light-skinned. There have been very, very few important like government people in modern Brazilian history to be look even a little what we would call black, but they don't have the one-drop theory, which is one of the most horrific and yet 
still accurate, you know, notions ever, accurate meaning in describing a culture, which is that in the United States in 2015, if it is known that you have one drop of, you know, quote unquote black or African blood, that makes you black. And, you know, luckily we're in a place now where people, you know, are embracing multiculturalism just within themselves. But what a different approach. Yes, darker people are discriminated against in Brazil because they look darker. But it's not a clear-cut level of like, okay, you're too dark or you're too light. In this country it is and has been for a long time. And so, you know... (laughs) Like, where did this come from, right? So, like, the Spaniards, you know, are are doing their thing, but they're intermixing. South America, you know, has way more color variations than North America. I mean, not now, but, you know, during the colonial period or whatever. So, you know, why was Spain and Portugal okay with mixing? I'm just raising a lot of issues here because race is very difficult to untangle. And the approaches were, you know, not consistent, obviously, both within these various countries and between the different countries, you know. Why were the Spaniards okay with open intermingling with uh, with their, you know, slaves and the local populations? I'm sorry, I should have mentioned a long time ago, the indigenous populations as well. So you got three different groups going on there, at least. You know, in the U.S., it was like you're a slave or you're not. Um, where did this come from? What was, was the pseudoscience aspect of racism? Was that what changed this whole discourse or was it just facts on the ground? Was it the culture of the colonial powers? Like what the hell is going on? How do we understand this? Yara Hernandez, go. Um, you have to start with ideas regarding mixing that originated in Iberia. If you want to talk about both Portuguese and the Spanish, um, colonial project in the new world. There were racial hierarchies based on skin color, of course, and there were. So we can't we can't we can't just say that they weren't there. Um, but mixing occurred for many different reasons. Um, one of them, of course, being the necessities on the ground, the territory that was colonized. Although here in the United States, of course, we were were the children uh, directly of sort of uh, Western Europe. Um, and we, we continue the civilizational project in many ways of Western Europe and see ourselves kind of borrowing from this, these Northern Atlantic um, European powers, specifically England. And so a lot of how the social hierarchies and racial stratifications um, during the, the height of slavery and enslavement of African peoples here in the United States is, is very much informed, as you point out, by the British model, right? This, this very strict separation very strict in terms of how people view themselves, but not necessarily, as you point out as well, strict in terms of um, sexual abuse and the creation of mixed race children within sort of this, right, like this, this slaveocracy or kind of this, this slave state that happened here in the South in the United States. Um, which is very, very complex. And of course, I'm not doing sure. in any way, shape, shape or form justice. In Latin America, though, it's a, it's a much larger territory, right? So the Spanish were given the majority of uh, Central America and South America, and of course, uh, the, a big chunk of North America in the form of New Spain. The Portuguese were given Brazil. Um, this was by the Borgia Pope, and I forget his name. I think he was Alexander VI, but I, I, I could be mistaken. But essentially, the Pope who himself was a Spaniard sort of gave the bulk of the territory to the Spanish. Uh, that was convenient. That, that was very convenient. And so the, the realities on the ground, which, which are very, very interesting, the 
port of departure, the point of departure in Spain that served as kind of like this colonial hub for the New World was Sevilla, which is right smack dab in the middle of Andalusia. Um, and if you go to you know Granada, Sevilla is a couple hours away. So it's like um, yeah, and the river that they used to get out of, you can't even sail out of anymore, right? The Guadalquivir is yeah, it's so, dried up. So here you have a port kind of inside of of, of southern Iberia in Andalusia, um, and that's where the people were flocking to from other parts of of uh, Spain to then leave to the New World, and also really informs who was going and who was traveling to the new world. Um, the major- vast majority uh, were men um, throughout the 16th century. Uh, there was a, a night, this idea of, um, of misogynation, of mixing a racial mixture that was tolerated and allowed and in some places even encouraged because of this notion that there was a need to create a population of criollos or like uh, homegrown people who had direct ties through lineage back to Spain, but also similarly understood the sort of cultural context of perhaps their mothers. And this was kind of the the bulk of the marriages or the bulk of unions, I should say, uh, were between Spanish males and indigenous women, especially in in, in New Spain, which would become Mexico. Um, but also you, you had this mixture of uh, either enslaved African women or uh, uh, women who had been formerly enslaved um, who had unions with uh, Spanish males to create this uh, class of indigenous people that had these direct linkages back to the mainland, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have the you, – so in essence – you have the the opposite of hypodescentism, right? Hypodescentism is the one drop rule, right? So in Latin America, instead of it being that if you had one drop of black or indigenous blood, you were black or indigenous, right? Or you were, or you were African, I should say, and indigenous. Right. Um, it was the opposite, right? So if you had any any you had one drop of Spanish or European blood, then you had more ties to Spain and to Europe. So mm. it inverts the way that race is understood but does not necessarily invert the social hierarchy right the more pure uh african you were or the pure indigenous you were you were lower way 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 low on the totem pole but if you had more spanish blood you then were higher up on the totem pole and it became um somatic and it it became phenotypical became by the way people look physically because that was yep. that was the way that could be outwardly manifested. Yeah. That was the easiest way to determine, right? There was the easiest way to figure out who was who and how, depending on how light they were, or how their features looked, how close they were in proximity to racial purity. But these notions of racial purity, um, especially any like sanguine notions, right? With notions related to blood purity and to the purity of a lineage. Those are really Iberian. Those go all the way back both to the Muslim period in Al-Andalus, but also directly to the 16th century iterations of blood purity statutes against Muslims and Jews. So so these ideas were like, they're like not genetic. They're not biological. They're not post-scientific revolution. So we can't call them that, Mm -hmm. but they really look like that stuff. They really do. Yeah, absolutely. They really look like that stuff. It, it It just looks like, you know, it's like 
I don't want to say it's like, you know, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, but it's, 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 it's looked a lot. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and uh, in terms of the colonization of the Western hemisphere, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the landmass size difference plus just this, the size of the forces. I mean, here's the thing. What happened in South America was really imperialism more than colonization, right? I mean, they did stay some for a while and they mixed but it wasn't like north america where you know the descendants of northwestern northern europeans literally conquered the entire continent for good and so you know i you know i wonder politics play into this you know for example when brazil by the time brazil became like an independent country and you know really started becoming brazil everyone was just brazilian at that point the spanish it's not that they were a distant memory but it's not like the united states which was founded by and totally in control of the descendants of white people from England and Germany and, and elsewhere, and slavery continuing a hundred years into the independence of the country, and then all of a sudden slavery ends, and even though slavery had started hundreds of years before uh, independence, and certainly the hundred years before the end of slavery in the United States, those structures were already in place, and so institutionalized, you know, non-formal slavery continued, and do does continue today in this country as well. And so, you know, there's a lot of historical things that go into it. And, you know, it, it's possible. Again, I mean, let, let's put it this way. You go to Brazil and you can be as dark as like the darkest looking Spanish person and still be considered like quote unquote white, you know, in, in their society in terms of like, you know, how far you can advance or whatever. In this country, I'm just, it's interesting with just, uh, you know, I'm so fascinated by the whole one drop thing and why that's so specific to slavery in North America. Or, or maybe it's not. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of political and historical circumstances that made these things unfold differently. And to sort of bring religion back into it, at what point would you say, again, I mean, this, chronologically this is almost impossible, but if you had to sort of... Uh, do like a parabolic graph or something, uh, it, you know, when did religion and race really start separating or, or at least some instances that you're, that you're familiar with, whether it's Spain or otherwise, where they became specifically delineated that to be of the same race was one thing to be of the same religion was one thing, but if you shared a race, but not a religion or vice versa, and that was a whole nother thing. I would point to the debates between um, Bartolomé de las Casas and Sepúlveda in Spain, where they were really trying to argue um, whether or not indigenous people in the Americas had souls, right? De las mm. Casas was arguing that, yes, they did have souls, and Sepúlveda was like, no, they don't. Oh, my God. That's so disturbing. I would point to that as like a, at least a very, like, an in, like part of the intellectual history of this stuff. I would point to that as a moment where um, you have these things being debated and then policy being set according to the winner of that debate, right? So essentially the Catholic Church says that no uh, indigenous peoples in the Americas do have souls. And so because they have souls, they need to be converted to Catholicism. But then what happens with that conversion process by converting the indigenous, indigenous population and also the population of uh, enslaved Africans who were brought over, um, essentially what you have is then this population of people that are all Christian, right? If, if everyone is Christian, if everyone is a Catholic, then there must be other ways of determining difference. 
Um, and phenotypical difference was, was sort of this sort of adjacent thing, this, this, this obvious thing to point towards. And I think that that is the real break. The break happens when they're no longer, you know, post early 17th century, post the expulsion of the Moriscos, when the, you know, Iberia is really trying to, Spain specifically and Iberia is trying to define its Hispanicity and identity in terms of its Europeanness, right? And, and by default, um, you know, its ideas regarding what Europeans look like. I don't want to, I don't want to call that whiteness because I don't think that really develops then, but I, w- I do want to call that ideas regarding European identity, um, especially with the discovery of the new world, right, of the Western Hemisphere. And with the creation of indigenous and even enslaved populations of, of also Christians, um, there had to be a different way to then determine who was who and what was what and where people fell on that social hierarchy. So you had enslaved peoples, both indigenous and African, at the very bottom of that society. You had freed um, enslaved, well, for post or, or freed Africans slightly above them. You had indigenous people that may have been at the same rung as those freed Africans or maybe slightly above, depending on how close they were. And then you had this entire population of mixed people, both mixed European African and European indigenous. There was indigenous African. There were all these different admixtures and of, of people, but they were all classified in what became called La Sociedad de las Castas, like, a, like literally like charts, paintings, of, you know, drawings of, well, if you, if you take a uh, mulata, right? The, even, mm-hmm. even if you take a person who is half European, half African, a mulato, right? This, this really horrible term that comes, comes from the term mule. Um, but even the word mulato, and I, I think I might have pointed this out in the last podcast, um, that term comes from the Arabic term uh, mualad which is the term that's used to describe hybrids. And that mm-hmm. during the period in Al-Andalus, the term mualad was used to describe those people, like let's say if they had a Muslim father and a Christian mother, the offspring were mualads. They were Muslim, but they were mixed. They were hybrids. Um, and that was kind of the generic term that was used during Al-Andalus to describe all of the indigenous um, Iberians right, who converted to Islam were called mualad. And they actually, they revolted several times um, and they, they had their own sort of, you know, power struggles with the Arabs and the Berbers. Um, and that is directly linked, right? So if you, you see sort of the etymology of the term mule coming from this Arabic term that related to people and hybridity, and then you have this very same term mule, mula, then being used to describe mulatto or someone who's half African, half European, and even the conflation of the term more with blackness, with North African blackness, you can see that this stuff has like this genealogy, right? this like etymology of, of, of linkages directly related to like race and directly related to phenotype and directly related to how people were perceived as being mixed. Um, and if you take a mulatto and you take a European, which is really, really interesting, if you take a pure European white male and uh-huh. you take a mulatta woman who is half European, half black, and or half African, and then you mix those two people, what do you right. get? You get a morisco. So uh-huh. moriscos were essentially someone who was a quarter African, according to this society of castes. Okay, so yeah. And so this, this brings me back to the one drop thing, which is that 
you know, in medieval Spain, pick any time period, if you were a quarter anything, but you look like the three quarters thing, you know, and there wasn't any other evidence, even if you were slightly darker or lighter or whatever, you sort of could get away with it. But, you know, in this country up until recently, and even now, like, if you look slightly African American, you know, I mean, it, it's an interesting thing. Let me, let me pose a hypothetical question. It's a two-parter. Was there any point in history, as far as you can tell, anywhere where racism, the, the hatred associated with racism or whatever, became hatred for you know race as its own reason, as opposed to just being utilitarian and wanting to preserve your authority? Did have we reached a point where like people are just racist because of conditioning that doesn't even have any rational thing? Because for example. You know, to go back to, you know, let's go to the early Muslim period where they were from, you know, in Portugal all the way to China. There were some, you know, governments where Arabs who were minorities there who were invaders or whatever or just stayed had very high positions. It was beneficial to be an Arab in addition to being a Muslim. It wasn't necessarily, you know, straight on racial discrimination as we pointed out, but there's some stuff there. But it was utilitarian, right? The same way as utilitarian to convert to various religions when you're invaded. Has racism stopped being utilitarian, you know? Is it just become a complex at this point? Um, and... I guess with a leading question to bring it back to academic critique in terms of critiquing academia, are we pre- are we preserving this problem by talking about it so much and making so many terms uh, about it? And not just we as in we academics. I mean, the media, you know, anyone involved yeah. in this discourse. There is an argument uh, in uh, Omi and Winant's text, Racial Formations, where they argue that even creating structures that help out racial minorities, in essence, perpetuate race directly. So this is not uncommon. I mean, people have asked this question before, whether or not even, like, we we can recognize that race is a social construction that isn't real, that has a direct genealogy, that has a historicity, that we can point directly to where these sorts of ideas begin to manifest themselves um, and they're, they're really contemporary. They're not that old. You know, if we, if we just put them in the 16th century, then they're 500 years old. Right. Um, which is not a very long time considering that we as, as modern humans have been around for over a hundred thousand years. And so <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. We made it this long. <laughs> yeah. And so for me, I think about this stuff and I think it is still very much necessary to talk about these, these structures, uh, because they're, we can recognize that they are social constructions, but we need to realize that these social constructions have taken on a life of their own um, and a life that is perpetuated through the systemic oppression of people. And because of this, it is still necessary to discuss them, even while recognizing that they are essentially a fiction, um, that, there, that there is no strict difference genetically or biologically between the races, that there's more difference between men and women than there are between the races. Sure. Well, not to, but and I guess what I'm also pushing on with this question is also vast differences between manifestations of so-called racism, both through time and space. I mean, you know, the reason I wanted to bring in the example of of slavery in the New World is just because, from a personal standpoint, growing up on the East Coast in suburban Philadelphia. As a white person, relatively privileged, went to a great public school, 
It was a little diverse, but it was pretty, you know, standard, you know, late 90s, uh, you know, East Coast America, slightly more liberal than the rest of the country, to say the least, but, you know, still standard. And my whole notion of race and racism is based around the black experience in this country, because that's just the one that you're taught, and that's the most salient and relevant, and just in terms of sheer numbers and what goes on in this country. Uh, And so... You know, that combined with Darwinism, as you point out, it's easy enough for us to, you know, take notions about, you know, Darwinism or social Darwinism or pseudoscience and then apply it to the past where it wasn't being thought of in those terms. Point being, am I, as someone who grew up associating the problem of racism being mostly associated with black Americans, I mean, can I even objectively use that word to talk about you know, other examples of racism, like what you're talking about. And then the problem is, and this is the problem with academia, and maybe this is where I want to go a little bit and why I left. And part of the reason I left is that, you know, the problem is there's always too many words or not enough, right? So if you, if you don't have enough words, you can't describe what's going on. But if you have too many words, then it just becomes reified, and, and then you just get lost in an, an endless web of new, you know, words and adding hyphens and, and semicolons, right? It, it, and, and as you were talking about the whole, it's it's, and and this is obviously why post-structuralism or whatever you want to call it, or like post-postmodernism, you know, I think of it as post-structuralism is now in fashion, and you know, I'm kind of on board with it. I mean, I don't want to get rid of all these structures. It's important to talk about. I guess the idea is, I think the problem is that because of, you know, pedagogy, pedagogical theory, not just in this society, we don't know how to use terms, or more specifically, the binary terms, conditionally and not definitively, right? And this goes back to Taoism, which you know I'm a big Taoist guy, but also why I relate to Zizek and all these post-structuralist nutcases, which is that we need to be able to tackle binaries and terms on their own terms, but realize that they are conditional on so many other things, and you know that by talking about binaries, we're creating them, right, or or, or perpetuating them, and so, and I think this is also a part of the problem with the, with the gap between academia and society. There's so much important research that people like you are doing, but you know, th- there's a two-way relationship where academia is like, oh, regular society can't handle this, and regular society is like, oh, you know, like guys like me and you are just a bunch of pretentious assholes who think, you know, we, we can describe the way the world works or whatever. There's got to be some happy medium from an education standpoint, from a communication standpoint here. We can talk about these issues, we can use terminologies, but make them conditional and know that they are conditional and and fluid, right? It it has to be fluid. Sorry, I just went on a rant there. I've been holding that in for a while. Not not from this podcast, just in general. So to the issue of vocabulary, right? The issue of like the jargonization of English, especially when it relates to academics. Jargon, good word. (laughs) It it, it is, it's (laughs) academic. No, I was was searching for that word. I couldn't find that. Um, And essentially, uh, this is what happens. I remember my first year at Temple when, and we talked a little bit about this earlier in relation to language where I was just like, what the fuck are these people talking about? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like part of my language, I was just like, I'm, I'm lost here. I don't know what's going on. And I thank so deeply my, my time at the Critical Muslim Studies Institute in Granada, where essentially, um, you know, brothers and sisters who had, who had been in this academic game a little longer than me, my, my homie, uh, Zahir Kolia up in uh, Toronto, 
Shouts to you, brother. He Yeah, shout out, baby. He basically like we we walked. So if you know Granada, right? We walked from like the bus station in Granada all the way up to the Albaicin, like the long way. Oh. And it took oh, us yeah. like I've done that numerous times. And it took us like two hours, you know what I mean? Because we were just we were just, we were kicking it. We were really talking about and I basically like just him and me alone, I was like, dude, what does this word mean? And what do they mean by this term? And what do they mean by this phrase? And like right. in the span of a couple of hours, he just schooled me. I just had like a vocabulary lesson. Um and I thank him so deeply because like literally that that helped me then go and read the material that other people were quoting and citing at this Muslim, the Critical Muslim Studies Institute and, and being able to digest it because I understood the vocabulary. I understood yep. what we were talking about. And so that stuff is, is really, really important. And I fall into this category. I, I can't help it all the time when I'm teaching my students. Um, I often just stop and ask them, hey, did you guys understand what I just said? Like, do you need me to break it down? Do you need me to take some time out? And a lot of times they're reluctant to say that, right? Because no one wants to look like they don't know. But then sometimes I take it upon myself without even asking for a prompt from them and just try to break stuff down a little bit further so that folks can understand. And I really value when my students tell me, hey, Hernandez, I, I, I didn't get that. I didn't get what you yep. just said. And yeah. being able to, to translate this jargon to, to everyday terms that are still, I mean, if you're in college and you're being exposed to, to high diction, you're being exposed to the language of the academy. So for a lot of these students, whether they're freshmen, sophomore, juniors, or seniors, they, they know right. and they, they have vocabulary. But when you get to the upper echelons of academia in, in grad school and beyond in, in, early, right. in early sort of careers and in late careers and mid-career, it gets deep. And especially within your one particular field, right? So like, I, I think it is, is a very, very solid point and it is no, necessary it, it's great. to, break, these, to yeah. break this stuff down. And that's what I love about the Temple Department and why I wanted to come to Temple because I went to Wesleyan University. I, I was extremely fortunate, you know. I mean, I just got lucky. I got in, small liberal arts school. I, I mean, it's so postmodern there, both the classes and the politics on campus. It's so radical. It's so left. It's so postmodern that, I, you know... <laughs> Maybe this will be fun to tell some stories from Wesleyan. Uh, I'm sorry, tell some stories from some temple. So I get to temple, right? And I knew it was going to be a mix of people with different backgrounds, different places, different places in their lives, different ages, you know, different amounts of experiences and education and types of education. And it's funny that you said that, man, actually, because by the time I met you, you struck me <laughs> as like an incredibly academic guy already. I, I didn't know that that was a struggle for you. But so I'm sitting in Laura Levitt's, you know, Judaism course, right? First semester at Temple. I'm sitting there. She's going on about, you know, post, post, post feminism and all this stuff. I'm loving it. I'm arguing against her. We're fighting. I mean, we became not fighting. We just love debating. And everyone else in the room just looked scared out of their fucking mind. I remember. I remember. I ended up leading some study sessions for some of the some of the students because they had no idea what the fuck she was talking about. And this isn't like me patting on my back. Like, yes, I know what third and fourth wave feminism are, but I did, you know. And I appreciated it. But but the thing about Laura is that she's just such a great person and communicator. Eventually, people started opening up and relating to it. But those first few classes uh, was really an interesting experience, and that is part of the problem. Even really smart, educated people, it's a big jump with all of this jargon, as you say, all of this lingo, 
all this stuff. And, you know, that's why I love writers like Zizek who use this language but just twist it in a million different directions just to fuck with you. I mean, this is the thing. I know we're getting off topic here, but, you know, I mean, <laughs> me, and you, me and you having a discussion about academia, I feel like, has been coming for a while, you know, is that we need to start looking at these things as thought experiments and mind games, and positive mind games, you know, mind exercises, word exercises, the way Wittgenstein talked about it, the way the Taoists talked about it. You know, the Taoists used binaries so that they could explode the binaries. You know, the binaries exploded themselves once the understanding came in. And they're all conditional. Doesn't make them more or less real or more or less true. It's just based, you know, we live in a transient, constantly changing world. And so the terms that we use, we get decades long arguments over words like race. I mean, I mean, now it's reaching centuries long, right? I mean, how much longer are we going to argue over this word before we realize it doesn't mean anything? And, you know, the problem is it has so much academic cachet, but also has popular cachet. I mean, this isn't an original thought, but if you just call someone a racist in a public setting with no context and no evidence, it immediately taints that person, even if no one else knows anything about that person, right? I mean, it's so poisonous. And to go the reverse way from this, we've got the N-word, right? And I understand people who say we got to get rid of the N-word, and I get people, you know, who are the people that are obviously allowed to use it, saying, no, we want to reclaim the word by saying it. I get both sides of that issue, and I don't know who's right on the N-word issue or who's wrong. I can see both sides, but that's the whole thing, you know? It's just, it, you got to have the open discussion about it, because just by talking about it, the binary starts to fade away a little bit more towards reality, but that binary exists in the terms of academia. You got academics, you got regular people, and uh, you know, and, and this goes all the way back to the, the beginning when we were talking about how to present our academic work. I'm throwing a lot out there. You can respond to any of that. I would also say, just in a general question though, as we sort of move into the last act here, is how can we get this knowledge to people who are literate? you know, who are, you know, middle class and up, or even less than middle class, let's forget classes, just in terms of education, have at least a solid high school education, if not summer or, or all college or community college, people who can read, know how to read books, read the New York Times, whatever, interested in this stuff, get them engaged in these subjects. It seems so hard with the way the book industry is going and, you know, academia is really rolling up into itself even more than ever, it seems to me. Maybe you don't find that to be the case. How do we get this out there? How do we, how do we get this discussion, you know, st st still going in the ivory tower, but also going, you know, uh, on the ground with us regular people? Well, I think we're doing it right now, brother. Yeah, baby. That's, that's what the Bizzle that's all about. That's, that's the, the honest answer. I mean, I was talking to um, my wife, Melissa. Shouts to you, honey. I was talking to her about doing this again. And I was like, well, I really enjoyed the first Bizzlecast. And I like want to continue doing as many podcasts and other avenues out there in the media. Because this is, this is how information is disseminated. This is how things are shared. This is how I don't want to be just this guy writing books for other guys and, and girls and sort of men and women, boys sure. and girls out there. Yeah. 
I mean, dude, just to interrupt you for a sec, first of all, thank you. Second of all, you're welcome anytime. I mean, you can have your own mini-series if you want, as far as I'm concerned. People fucking love the Spain podcast. And I have to tell you, with all the nerdy stuff I do, and some of it gets good ratings, the Spain podcast and my Taoism podcast, which goes way back, are still two of the highest like you know, watched podcasts out there. Like People are hungry for this stuff. And yes, most of the people listening are, are friends or friends of friends or friends of friends of friends, but still, that's, that says a lot. It's a great format for it. Thanks for just the, not just the plug for me, but the plug for podcasts in general and, and just, you know, engagement and dialogue. You're totally on point. Yeah, dude. I'm, this is, I, I'm very much in line with attempting to uh, bring this to the people. I mean, my advisor, uh, Dr. Zain Abdullah, is constantly reminding me that, that we need to, that scholars need to produce scholarship. Uh, but part of what scholarship is, is also bringing it and making it accessible to people outside of the scholarly realm, right? Outside of academia. Right. Um, and I do want to do that myself. I, I have attempted to do that. Um, I wrote a column for uh, an Indonesian women's magazine for a while um, where I talked about being a Muslim father, right? Where, where it wasn't necessarily academic. It was sort of confessional and more on the lines of me just sharing what being a Muslim and being a dad was all about with with an infusion of my beliefs and also my infusion of what I've learned. A little, a little urban philosophy as I like to call it. And uh, that stuff is out there in the world and that stuff gets like picked up and read. And I posted that stuff on my academia page, academia.edu. And I just put that out there. Although it's not academic writing, that's my writing. I own that stuff. And I, I, I stand behind my words. And I think that a lot of that public intellectual life is necessary, right? If you're just, um, if you're just preaching to the choir, man, you're not, you're not really getting out there. No one else is hearing you. Well, and this is, I just want to give another plug and shout out to the temple department. We probably, I mean, you know, we're like four hours in total two to two podcasts. And we've, we've talked a lot about some of these or talked some about some of these professors, but what's great about the temple university religion department for me, at least while I was there, I don't know how much turnover there's been, if anything, in the last couple of years is that you got the people doing super modern topics like Laura Lovett doing feminism and Judaism. She's amazing. You've got Zayn Abdullah, who uh, is an expert on black Muslims in America, both American Muslims in terms of nation of Islam, but also Africans who live in America who are practicing Islam, among other things. But then you've got Dr. Blankenship, Khalid Blankenship, who's also a converted Muslim and who is, you know, the, the epitome of the armchair professor so brilliant and charismatic and engaging. I mean, he's a history guy. I mean, he can literally tell you the history of anything from yesterday to like 30,000 years ago, if it involves humanity, as far as I could tell. I don't need to tell you these stories. I've told the stories to many people that I'd go in to get a form signed by Blake Chip because he was my advisor. And two hours later, I'd walk out with like 10 pages of notes about clashes between the Byzantine Empire, you know, and the fucking 1100s. I mean, just unbelievable, you know, fountain of history. And yet he's got a great grasp on the modern stuff. It's just not his specialty. But that's, that's what makes it great is having people who study all sorts of different periods, but are also, you know, if not experts, at least very familiar with different subfields within their fields. I don't know if you found that to be the case or continue to find that to be the case. It's very refreshing. And you almost need a public, a big public university like Temple in some ways to make that happen. Uh, my experience here has been very, very solid. Temple's been very good to me. The department has really supported my work. 
continues to support my work um, through scholarships, through assistantships, through just funding uh, trips to do research and funding trips to go to institutes. And I, I can say from going from City College in New York, which I loved, I, I my City College family were still sort of connected through social media. Um, shouts to you guys. I'm doing a lot of shout outs today. Um, but what's interesting is like going from City College up in Harlem, a very sort of like urban uh, city place, part of the City University of New York, um, to doing my master's at the University of Pennsylvania, which was sort of the epitome of the ivory tower. I find that that Temple's a very good middle ground for me where I have the the, the city university feel right after. Oh yeah, and you you said you only. I'm sorry to interrupt. You said you only applied to Temple grad, right? Yeah, because I did too. I did too. I was going to. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I want to hear your story just really quickly. I I was going to apply to Penn and Temple, and I had one meeting with one professor at Penn. I will not mention their name. It wasn't the religion department, but that person uh, and just the overall vibe of that department. I was like, you know what. And then I met with Levitt and Blankenship and Abdullah in like a one week period. And I was like, all right, I'm in, <laughs> you know, like, uh, so yeah, anyways, uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say that, uh, you know, uh, coming out of high school, I wasn't the best student in high school. I think I majored in truancy. Um, I majored in hanging out in the, in the West village. That's what, in the West and the East village. That's what I did. I we used to go and hang out in the city and do graffiti. Uh, dude, dude, stuff. I'm so- uh, the the kids I tutor from high school, I love them to death. But if I told them that I majored in truancy, they'd be very impressed because they don't know what the fuck truancy means. <laughs> I, I I majored in playing spades in the lunchroom. Uh, <laughs> at least you were playing dice. <laughs> well, at least I wasn't playing dice. So right, it's it's like I I did that, and I wasn't sure if I was going to go to college. And I always think about my academic career, and I'm I'm just amazed that I'm here. And my mom constantly reminds me and, and tells my wife and my daughter whenever they're willing to listen that uh, midway through my high school career, that, you know, I was getting 40s and 50s. Um, basically, if I didn't go to school, that's what they would give you. And then I went to City College and really, really enjoyed it. Um, wanted to study. Interestingly enough, I wanted to study um, Islamic Spain. I wanted to study Al-Andalus. And uh, no one was there that really covered the area. But they said, well, here... Um, is someone who can do uh, the Middle East. And so I studied under Beth Barron at, uh, the, in the history department at City College, and now she's at the Graduate Center. Um, and fell in love, fell in love with all of this stuff and in college converted to Islam and, um, you know, went to, went to Penn. When I, so I only applied to City and got in. I only applied to Penn and got in, and I only applied to Temple and got in. So my academic career, as far as my education, has been very deliberate, very um, focused. This has been what I've wanted. Um, I haven't really wanted to do other stuff. And so uh, in many ways, I mean, I'm, I'm still knee deep in the struggle, um, but I'm also living yeah. the dream, right? So it's like this dual thing going on. This, Absolutely. This sort of uh, <laughs> this, this career that is both uh, a struggle because of, of my own sort of ethnic background and racial background. I am mixed race. As a Dominican American, uh, I'm Latino, I'm Hispanic, whatever you want to call me. Um, I definitely foreground my Dominicanness before all things. And being Dominican is also a matter of being mixed race um, by default. Um, and I'm also Muslim. And these things really inform how I approach the world. 
um, in a very diverse way. And, and out yeah. of my Islam, I'm also on the extreme, not the extreme left, but very, very left politically and also sure. religiously super open to diversity supporting. You're very progressive. You're a true, true, pro- uh, that's how what I consider myself, you know. Sometimes progressive is used to mean like left of center, but that's not really what it's meant to mean. So I, I am very I'm <laughs> because you're you're far left, but dude, let's be honest. As much as we you know blame you know the far right for being anti-Islam, there are people on the far left that are very critical of Islam because of women or perceived treatment of women and so forth. It's it's not so clear cut. It it isn't, and you have of course the very hard atheist left that is uh, very Islam- like Bill Maher. Look at Bill Maher. Very Islamophobic. Bill Maher loves uh, Ayan Ali or whatever the hell her name. Yeah, is. Ayan Hirsi Ali. Um, yeah. I am very much in support of quote-unquote progressive issues, uh, but I also critique progressivism in the sense of its if it's really strong attachment to the an unquestioning attachment at times to the liberal tradition and sure. um, not really questioning coloniality and yeah, I guess I, I I'm I'm actively trying to reclaim the word progressive yeah. to distinguish it from standard liberal. Uh, yeah, that's, that was sort of what radical. I was getting at. I mean, the, yeah. you know, there needs to be a reclamation of the word radical itself, where it no longer right. needs to mean, especially within Islamic terms, where the word has kind of been attached to uh, sort of terrorism and ideas regarding, you know, hatred of the West. And I think that uh, the term radical or radical Islam or radical Muslims needs to really be reclaimed in terms of, of looking at things beyond just this positioning of folks. Like, I, you know, I, I tell folks, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not here to, 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 to blow anything up, you know what I mean? But I am here to, to critique and to challenge. You're not here to blow up moons? No. And, and instead, I think that like I really, speaking about personal identity at this point. Yes. Yeah, so I think for as far as like my own personal identity, um, I see myself as a critical Muslim thinker. Uh, and I know that even that label has been critiqued by some of my friends who are like, well, what does that mean? It's very ambiguous. But I think the ambiguity is on purpose. It's a very purposeful ambiguity. Um, for a long time, I did belong to a progressive Muslim organization here in the United States. And uh, I value a lot of the things that I learned within that organization uh, but I also learned to critique that organization and to be able to critique progressivism amongst uh, American Muslims and to say my identity, I think, is really rooted in a theology of liberation within Islam that I think is really part and parcel of the tradition. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I think a, a desire to always constantly position myself and to side with those who are marginalized and oppressed in society even even when that marginalization is happening or being instigated or being done by those closest to me. And that is, that's hadith. Huh. The Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and I'm here, I'm pra- paraphrasing the Prophet, um, but essentially the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said that to fight against oppression, even if the oppressor is your brother, if mm-hmm. the oppressor is someone incredibly... Or yourself. Or yourself, exactly, even if you are the oppressor. And so that's what jihad was. What I mean, that's what people don't realize. Jihad means fighting yourself. I mean, that's what it meant to mean, right? Uh, Originally, uh, you know, jihad al akbar the the greater jihad, the the jihad of al nafs, is the struggle against oneself and the struggle mm-hmm. towards perfection. Um, the mm-hmm. Quran says, um, 
Today, I have perfected your religion, and by sort of, I'm also paraphrasing the Quran here, but today I perfected your religion, and perfecting your religion, I have perfected you, right? And so, to, to Dean, when I first converted to Islam, um, you know, me and my homies were Muslim, you know, Dean to Dean was, was a verb, right? So, you were deaning when you were on top of your game, when you were praying, but also not only praying, but also going to, to shelters and going to food banks and going to places where you could distribute alms and going to help out other individuals that were in need. So deening was a verb in the sense of what we could do as Muslims to help other people. Um, and that stuck with me. That has always stuck with me. That's been part of why I've attempted to continue and dedicated my life to the study of Islam and why I, you know, how I view myself in relation to other Muslims. Right? So my identity as a Muslim is grounded within a radical tradition of siding with the poor, the, the oppressed, the marginalized. Um, and that could be based on anything, race, sex, uh, gender, sexual orientation. Whoever's at the bottom is who you really need to look at. Those folks, those folks who are um, at the bottom and being oppressed, that's who you need to, to help and assist. And sometimes that help comes by actively engaging those communities and, and being of assistance. Sometimes that comes by, that comes in the form of being able to speak up for folks. But sometimes that, that allyship comes in the form of, uh, of shutting the fuck up and listening, you know, part of my language again, but literally listening, shutting up, listening, and just, and being able to internalize narratives of other people who who are in the struggle who is someone that we all should be reading that we can have access to farid um i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) whoa hey that was that was the quickest response ever in in bizlacast history um i think that uh what's the name what's the name farid essak from south africa could you please spell that uh f-a-r-i-d-e-s-a-c-k farid essak um, I had the, the pleasure of spending some time with, um, with, with, with a good professor in, uh, in Granada, and um, I connected instantaneously with him. I really felt his vibe. He was, he was real in a, very, in a very particular, visceral way for me. He really connected. Oh, this guy. He was an anti-apartheid guy from back yes, in the day, yes, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, he's a, one of the major proponents right now of Islamic liberation theology and also... Yeah. Um, really critical of coloniality and kind of uh, entering into the fray of decolonial theory. And I really uh, I'm looking forward to reading more stuff from him and, and really looking at, at him and his example. I really like his style. I like the way he, he really carries himself. And also like him, I tend to be very personal when I share information. I tend to make things sure. directly related to myself in sort of like an anecdotal way and sort of hinting towards my own biography and I think he does that in an excellent fashion and, and really connects mm. with young young scholars. And I hope that other people were to read him more. He's written a bunch of books on the Quran, as you'd expect for such a guy. His most recent kind of big book, uh, or like, you know, quote unquote, you know, for the mainstream or whatever, it was called On Being a Muslim, Finding a Religious Path in the World Today. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Yes. All right. Well, you can get that on Amazon. You should definitely check it out. Yes, so a really good text, the uh, Quran and liberation. Um, and he also has another text, which is very integral to understanding uh, his position in South Africa, which is, uh, I think it's called either the, I think it's called Islam and AIDS. Huh. Islam and AIDS. Mm-hmm. Where, What's his position? 
Well, he essentially is arguing for Muslims to be more engaged with the AIDS crisis in South Africa and not to, to sort of stigmatize it in terms of, of sexuality or moral, morally reprehensive acts, but really to engage um, the AIDS crisis in South Africa is something that is, is something that Muslims need to engage with on a day-to-day basis uh, as a form of religious practice even, just to, this is what we should do because these are the people that are suffering in society. That is great to hear for me because as someone who lived in Botswana for a while and spent a lot of time in South Africa, and my sister lived in South Africa for a while, so I've been there a bunch, love South Africa and that whole part of the continent, but there are a lot of religious figures, mostly in the Christian hierarchies, but not a lot. There, there are more than you would like who have been in great denial about AIDS for decades now, and it is starting to change. And some have been up front. I mean, in some cases, religious leaders have been, you know, but, you know, the Catholic, the, there's, <laughs> there's a pretty strong Catholic um, presence in Southern Africa. Most people don't know that. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's nice to hear that there, there are religious leaders uh, on the, the level of him, on the scale of authority, um, tackling that head on, because that's been a major stumbling block in the way of, of turning that situation around. I mean, most of what I, not most, but a lot of what I studied in Botswana was AIDS and, and everything that was uh, fallout from it, because half the country had AIDS. I mean, it's a country of 3 million people. They estimated 50% back in 2003. So, you know, it affected everything and people were in denial about it is getting much better great to hear that's a great note to end on uh, anything else we've been all over the place with this one anything else you want to you want to mention in this whole thing or we just do a to be continued to part three this is always uh this has been fun again and um i just wanted to thank you for having me absolutely man absolutely well this was great i have no idea what i'm gonna call this podcast i mean this is the this is the most far out podcast I've had in a while in terms of the amount of topics discussed, which I freaking love. Uh, but, so I can't wait to edit this together. Um, hopefully this will be out. Uh, we're recording this on October 3rd, 2015. Hopefully it'll be out in a few days. And uh, yeah, man, thanks for coming back to the Bizzlecast. This was great. Just to, as you said earlier, just as a closing thought here, you know, having this dialogue is so important and it's great you know, in today's world that you and I can talk about these things, which we would be talking about anyways, in which we have, uh, but and share it with other people. And, uh, you know, the thing is, I, I haven't gotten like message boards going for the Bizzlecast, but this might be a good one to start. So um, look out for that. I might try and whether it's on Facebook or the website I'm working on, I might have a little discussion forum, get people involved in, in, in the discussion, if that sounds okay. All right, people. Thanks so much. Yark and I are out.